Welcome to Third Fridays, the monthly legal talk show from Lois LLC featuring attorney Christian Cisan. This is the original forum in which real attorneys discuss workers' compensation issues, share their opinions, and engage in colorful conversations. This show showcases diverse perspectives of attorneys handling workers' comp cases, including case law trends, practical litigation strategies, and hot topics. Here's your host, Christian Cisan. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the September 2021 edition of the Third Fridays podcast. And we're going to do a little current events uh, to bring uh, everything uh, to the table for you guys. Uh, I'm going to welcome this month's guest, uh, Vandana Saunders. Welcome back to the show. Thanks. I'm happy to be back. So we almost had you, well, not only we did have you as part of a panel of attorneys uh, a while back where we talked about some recent wins that the firm had and to exemplify our growing talent. Uh, So do you remember what case you had? I mean, obviously, I don't need any names of anything like that, but what what type of case did you have that specifically got a client a big win? Um, It was a medically focused case. So it was at the point of permanency. It was a schedule loss of use specifically dealing with a special consideration for patellochondromalacia. And in that one, we got, uh, saved the client a ton of money by getting a schedule reduced from about a 20, I think it was a 22, 25% down to a 7.5%. And that was based on a guidelines application, Mm -hmm. I'm guessing. Yep. Uh, Do you remember if there was like a special consideration or was it range of motion findings, maybe all the above? No, so for this specific diagnosis, it was an application of a special consideration. Okay. So you use the range of motion to figure out which one of the 7.5 to 10% you'd fall in that special consideration. But uh, the biggest thing was it's nothing more than 10%. Right. It's only the 7.5 to 10%. And then based on the range of motion, we actually got the lower end of that range. It's funny, I think, so the first decision that came out with, I mean, when someone says 7.5 to 10% now, I immediately think chondromalacia patella. Uh, that came out in 2019, they have mandatory full board decision, and doctors and claimants attorneys are still pushing those cases, like even today, for higher slews than the 10%. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely still relevant. I can think of cases right now off the top of my head that our firm has that were litigating this very issue, but that was a big win. And since then, of course, of <laughs> course, you've been so good at your job that you've gotten even more wins. And uh, the win that you wanted to talk about today is entirely different. It's not a medical piece, right? No. What, what is that case about? So this was a construction case and the win hinged on section 56, which I don't think is very commonly known. It wasn't commonly known to me until I got this case, Uh, but now I feel like somewhat of an expert on it. Uh, So uh, the case was basically a twofold. So one, we had to prove that our employer did not employ the claimant. And then by doing that, we could rely on section 56 to basically force the general contractor to take uh, responsibility for the claim and liability for the claim. Right, so like to move up the chain. Right. Right. So uh, we, we were the subcontractor and we were trying to point the finger at the general contractor. Right. right? 
Uh, a little bit. So we were one of the subcontractors. There were about six or seven. Sure. And sure. we were pointing our finger at a different subcontractor to say that your this claimant worked for you. And because he worked for you and you don't have insurance, the general contractor should then be liable under Section 56. Right. Okay. That makes sense. And, you know, in a construction context, there are so many different entities on a particular project. It's almost easy for a claimant to not know who his or her employer is. It's, it's a little odd, but typically when they get orders from different people, mm-hmm. in theory, he or she can be employed by multiple employers. So what did we do? You know, how are we able to prove that liability should move to the general contractor? Did we produce any type of evidence? Like what, mm-hmm. what kind of testimony was taken? You know, what led to this great win? Yeah, so uh, there were multiple different subcontractors, and it was uh, a lot of the time that we had this case for almost two years was a lot about production of evidence and production of uh, testimony. So we had about seven contracts that needed to be produced, and these are hundreds of pages long. We had waiver agreements that we needed to skim through, checks that we needed to skim through, payroll. And then we had uh, two witnesses that we produced. We had witnesses from other subcontractors as well as the claimant. So there was a lot of evidence to kind of uh, work through. And at the end of the day, what we were focused on is the control aspect. So how do we show that our employer had no control over the claimant, even though everybody was working on the job site in some capacity? Right. Those those, those are case-by-case arguments where you dictate direction and control not always through the same lens or the same equation or the same facts it's different things that are measured against each other and uh, presumably the judge ruled in our favor because we did not have control is that how yeah so that's that's basically it Um, and a lot of it is really the claimants understanding as well so when you have a claimant that's working on a job site with so many different subcontractors how do we know what he knows So if he believes someone is his employer, how do we really prove that it's not based on these facts? So in this case, the claimant thought that our employer was the boss because he was on the job site telling people what to do. And so we had to prove that he had no control over him. And by doing that, we had to produce these witnesses who could state very clearly that if the claimant was sick, he did not report to our employer. If the claimant needed to be fired or reprimanded, he did not get that from our employer. He was not paid through our employer. Checks were not presented from our employer. And all of those factors play into the control. And so we could say, you know, there is no control over the claimant. This is just somebody who's there in a supervisory capacity, but has no actual control over his job duties on the site. And therefore it should be this other subcontractor. And that makes sense because if you don't have that control, right, if the employer can't hire or fire an employee, then that employer also can't be held liable if that employee gets injured on the job. Right. So uh, defending that employer, it, it almost seems straightforward, but it's not because there are cases where the employer might not pay the claimant. They might not like, you know, legally employ the claimant in a contractual context, but if they exercise control, then 
there are cases where the Workers' Compensation Board and the Appellate Division will say you are their de facto employer and therefore you mm -hmm. are liable. So did you face arguments from other employers trying to say that you did control the employee? Yeah, so uh, a, a big part of that was the checks. So the checks were signed by somebody from our employer. Ooh. And the waiver agreements were signed by our employer. And so now it becomes, well, how do we figure out how this works in the industry? And uh, both of our witnesses testified that in this industry, because there are so many moving parts, because there are so many different subcontractors, how it works is one subcontractor will go, sign all the waiver agreements, sign all of the checks, and then disperse them among all of the parties. And that was, and the judge actually accepted that as, you know, the industry standard, because it it just kind of makes sense. If you have all of these different parties, you would trust one subcontractor to give the rest of them because they're all in the same business. Um, but that doesn't mean that the funds are coming from our employer. And that was something that we really needed to focus on. He can sign the checks, but it's not coming out of his bank account. Right. And that, that was the focus. That's a good point, too, because you and you want to give that out for the employer because you don't want employers to have this policy of kind of shielding their eyes and ears from important aspects of the job if they feel like they're going to be hit with liability for everything that happens just because they signed their name to a piece of paper. Right. So uh, I would imagine, you know, even winning at trial, everybody else that, or the, I, the, the losing party, right, maybe even the claimant, although I'm sure the claimant doesn't particularly care where the benefits are coming from, someone's going to appeal. Yeah. Right? So uh, the appeal that was filed by the aggrieved employer, I'm assuming, and its liable carrier, uh, did they try to foist it back on us? And... It, it, like what were yep. were they making the same arguments? Like how what how did how did they come about with uh, an appeal in a case where you know the judge decides credibility and, and all the merits in the issue? Did they present any new evidence on appeal, or what 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 were they saying? No, so I think I think the facts and the testimony was really in our favor, and I think the way that it was put over, the way that, uh, and I, I think in these cases because it's so much evidence, so much information, a lot of it really hinges on how you present that information to the judge. If you do it clearly and concisely, then it makes it easier for the judge to see our position and really agree with us. And I think that was something, if I could toot my horn, something that I did fairly well. And <laughs> well, um, I mean, what did the last ten minutes have been, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. But uh, so I, I don't think they really had a great argument. And so they kind of recycled the argument that they had at trial that uh, we're going to focus on these checks. Right. Their name is on the check. Their name is on the waiver agreements. It should be them. And uh, and, you know, they lost again at the on on the appeal level because that's it's just not good enough. It's not. Right. There's no additional evidence to contest that this is the business industry standard. And it's not guaranteed just because, you know, you're endorsing a check or you're, you're drafting a waiver agreement that you're the employer, especially exactly. in a situation where there are so many different uh, entities interacting with each other. Yeah. You know, and like, you know, we work in an office context, like it'd be hard for us to say that someone employed you or me because there are no entities being involved right. with our process here. But, you know, in a construction context, it's a little different. Uh, so 
awesome win. Uh, I'm glad that we got to uh, toot your horn for the last <laughs> 10 minutes uh, on an important uh, case that got our client off the hook with liability. But what I thought of with you uh, for this podcast and being the guest uh, this month was a new case from the appellate division and really harkening back to your prior win with getting a schedule loss of use reduced because there are a lot of things that happened in this case you know by the law judge by both parties doctors uh, then the board panel and then the appellate division it, was, it, it almost like felt like it was changing each level of the case at each level yeah. so uh, this is uh, Hughes versus Mid Hudson Psychiatric Center it was decided just this month September 2nd and can you give us maybe a short recitation of these types of facts leading into the appellate division's decision? Yeah, so I think uh, to summarize it as plainly as I could, there we're at the point of permanency. We're dealing with a schedule loss of use of the leg, specifically the knee. Um, and in this case, this claimant had a prior surgery to the same knee years ago. And this surgery had been mentioned in other medical reports, but there have been no medical evidence from that surgery years ago. So clearly apportionment would apply in one way or the other, but it's difficult to really determine how much is being apportioned if we can't see those medicals, we can't figure out what the extent of that prior injury is and how it affects the current injury. And so we have different levels here where uh, we can't come up with an apportionment uh, finding where we have the judge ultimately coming up with what he thinks the appropriate apportionment should be based on an application of, again, the special consideration for patellar chondromalacia because it very plainly gives you that range of 7.5 to 10%. No less, no more. The judge was able to figure out what it was based on that one diagnosis of chondromalacia patella, and then it ultimately came back to say, no, you can't just... Uh, you know, pick a, not necessarily pick a number, but you can't just determine apportionment without any evidence, without actually looking at the medicals and without a, an actual medical opinion. It's not up to the judge to make that decision. It's, it's really interesting because it, it almost seemed like a case where two different judicial bodies stuck their nose in, where the parties were kind of trending towards a resolution. Right, so before we even get to apportionment, the initial reports from both doctors agree on a 45% schedule loss of use. And how often does that happen? That's like so rare. The only difference was that the IME for the carrier gave the apportionment finding of 60%. Now, this is kind of where like I feel for the claimant's attorneys is very, very rare. So, I mean, if everybody's <laughs> listening, maybe like write it down because sometimes they are not aware of a claimant's prior medical history, even though, you know, the claimant is probably counseled to disclose that. Mm -hmm. Many people don't do that either out of fear or, you know, ignorance, but this prior injury resulted in six surgeries to the same body part. So uh, it's not clear on how the claimant's doctor amended his uh, permanency opinion, but essentially he got word of it and then came up with a figure that 30% of the slew was due to the prior injury. 
So still the same 45% baseline. IME finds 60% uh, apportioned to the old injury. The claimant's doctor finds 30%. Mm-hmm. Then the parties go to the board and the board found, well, I guess the law judge found that the IME was more credible, which, I mean, okay. But, <laughs> can, can that happen more in our cases? Right. <laughs> <laughs> the judge found that the IME was more credible. Usually they punish us for litigating slew and not compromising. But, hey, I guess we have a decent law judge in this case. Claimant appeals. It goes to the board panel. And the board panel says, no, not doing this. And when I say that, you'd think that it goes back to the law judge, but they just said there's no medical evidence. So you have two doctors that agree that apportionment should be found. But now the board panel is saying there's no medical evidence. But what I'm going to do is go back to the old guidelines. So before 2018 and before 2012 to the 1996 guidelines, and using the diagnosis of what had been even discussed, they created special considerations to attribute a slew to that old claim as if it were a workers' compensation claim. So basically saying, I'm gonna fashion my own medical opinion that you had a 27.5% slew based on apportionment to the prior claim. I mean, have you ever heard of that? Where two doctors <laughs> agree on a baseline slew, maybe d- disagree on the apportionment, but at least agree that there is some. And the board panel is like, no, I'm not gonna do it, but I'm gonna just come up with this number right here. Like, is, is am, I, am I going insane? I've right. never heard of the board just like using the guidelines to, uh, I guess, counter the fact that there's no medical evidence. Yeah, making a little bit more work for themselves, which is not what we typically see. And they go to, when the parties go to the appellate division, for some reason, I maybe it's, it's not a nice thing to say, but I, I do get a general kick out of when the appellate division reverses the workers' compensation board, <laughs> just because the board takes these crazy liberties sometimes. I mean, we can go, we can have a whole set of podcasts on what they're doing with labor market attachment and COVID and all the things that they're doing without any pretense of the law. But what the board does is says, uh, you just can't do that, right? You can't just Mm -hmm. create your own opinion without medical evidence. And that sends all the way back to the board to, as a remand. So if you're a carrier, if you're an adjuster or a risk manager, a risk professional with an employer, how, how can you make sense of this decision and you know, decide, you know, what, what do I do in my types of cases when, when this like, amalgamation of nonsense is before me? Like, how, would you, how would you react for your own cases? I mean, I think the biggest thing is just evidence, right? Like that's, that's how we win cases. We need to see everything. So we need to see contracts for a construction case. We need to see medicals when it's a medical issue. And if it's being noted in prior medical records that there were these six prior surgeries, this is not uh, something that's being hidden from us. This is something that we need to spot 
And then we need to be able to work with our carriers, work with our employers to get whatever prior records that we can. The more information we have at our disposal, the less likely it is that we have to go back and forth with the board and the appellate division and the judges to get to the right conclusion. And how many how many employers enjoy paying out slew awards? I don't know of any. My thought was, you find out that there's these six surgeries. If you don't have those medical records, then I don't know, maybe try and agree on at least the apportionment finding because your doctors already agree on the 45% schedule loss of use. Now, unless we're going to pull you know, a Vandana and then argue that this is not a correct interpretation, <laughs> we're not really arguing with much. We're just arguing about apportionment. I think that if we can't get those medicals, I think it's a full stop. I think we're saying to the court, you can't issue a slew ruling at all. Like you have to make the claim produce these old medical records so that both doctors have a foundation to review for apportionment. And if you can't do that, you really should just be agreeing on an apportionment finding. I mean, it almost seemed like they're trending in that way when the claimant's doctor files an addendum with an apportionment opinion. Yep. But someone spent the money to go to the appellate division and argue this. It's just it's just one of those cases where, you know, when you go to the uh, the appellate division without any evidence, as you so put it, you're you're just risking a loss and no outcome beneficial to the amount of investment that you spend. So, uh, my, I would agree with you. I think start with the evidence if you have it, then go with this litigation that ensued here. If you can't produce any of these records, I think your argument has to pivot towards no no award at all, no apportionment finding, nothing can be done until that's produced. Yeah, I agree. I mean, everything that we do, especially at the point of permanency, is so heavily based on the medicals. It is so heavily based on the physical findings. We can't argue on our end for a 30% LWEC instead of a 50% LWEC unless we can see the medicals and point to something definitive to support our arguments. And if we don't have that, then we're it's not a, a it, we're not doing justice to our clients here we're not doing you know justice to the to the claimant here as well we need to you know figure out exactly what we have and then come to the right uh, get to the right number yeah I totally agree I, I would almost say that you know to harken back to you know, if this file were ours you know if I could toot my own horn here now right if we ask for those records or try to get them at the outset, right, mm-hmm. uh, defend from day one, you're going to have those records, or at least you're going to start the process of getting them by the time you get to the permanency. If a doctor's making a slew opinion without apportionment when there's six prior surgeries to the same body part, you're already behind the eight ball and you're risking an outcome that's not beneficial to you because you've had all this time to produce those records. I mean, I would even be worried about a latches defense from my adversary if I knew about these six surgeries and did nothing to get those records. Right. So, you know, it's 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 a good point. You know, if if it's all evidence based, we start from the beginning and give ourselves at least the chance to succeed. 
you know, so I, I, I hope uh, I hope this employer and, and carrier kind of work it out uh, when this case gets remanded because to have six surgeries and not get an apportionment opinion would be truly tragic. Right, and the, the problem here is there is the apportionment finding, but to have six surgeries and not see any of those operative reports, not see anything from any of those surgeries is... Yeah. How, how would we would not even proceed with that? Yeah, yeah, I feel like that would that would be like a big meeting here. Like, don't go, don't do that, don't do anything until you get at least one operative report. This doesn't make sense. Why why are you doing this with six and and litigating on nothing? Right. Well, uh, I think that's a, a nice bow uh, to the conversation. Uh, so, congrats on another win. Uh, different a uh, different context in the. You know, coverage and construction space versus your last win, which was based on the guidelines application of a schedule loss of use. Uh, also, great to talk to you about this Hughes case, given your experience and success with reducing schedule losses of use for clients. So, uh, for Vandana Saunders, my name is Christian Cisan, reminding you to defend from day one. <laughs>